0: The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. Custom software needs vary significantly. Whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. Harnessing the technical excellence of Bulgaria, MentorMate provides end-to-end software services in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer world-class care through technology. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone out there in Medical Alley and around the world. Uh, This is Frank Ciscalti, your host for the Medical Alley podcast, and I'm so pleased that you decided to spend some of your drive time, bike time, or just downtime with us here today. I have a wonderful guest and a wonderful conversation coming up with Meg Gupta, who's a partner at Whittington Ventures in Toronto, Canada. Meg, welcome to the podcast, and uh, could you start with maybe just introduce yourself, uh, a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me, Frank. Um, You know, so as you mentioned, I'm an investor over at Whittington Ventures and we're a Toronto-based venture fund. Um, For me personally, I've spent the majority of my career at the intersection of tech and investing, kind of weaving in and out of operating and investing roles throughout. Um, Currently, I'm a partner at Whittington, um, but most recently before that, I was former global head of strategy and corporate development over at Element AI, which is building an AI operating system for the enterprise. Prior to that, I was an investor at Omers Ventures, one of Canada's largest VC funds. And before that, I've sort of done pseudo tours of duty in banking, management consulting, and entrepreneurship.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And I wanna I want come back to the, the operating part and being in startups for a moment. But before that, could you tell the listeners a bit about uh, who is Whittington Ventures and what do you mean when you talk about uh, connected health as an investment theme?
1: Whittington Ventures is a hundred million dollar multi-stage venture fund focused on making investments across North America. The fund is seeded by Whittington Group and invests in sectors that overlap with our LP's areas of expertise, including commerce, healthcare, and food biotech. Our unique calling card is our privileged access to iconic Canadian companies such as Loblaw, Canada's largest grocery chain, which is akin to Kroger's, Shoppers Drug Mart, Canada's largest pharma chain, which is akin to CVS, And those two entities combined do top line of 50 billion a year. However, more relevant for our chat today from a healthcare perspective is probably the verticalized nature of Shoppers as aside from its retail pharmacy operations, it also owns the country's second largest EMR, a generic drug manufacturing company and an insurance benefits administration platform. Aside from that, Whittington also owns other assets such as Choice Properties, which is a large commercial landlord and publicly traded REIT and Selfridges Group, a large luxury retailer. Now, one thing that's important to note is that while Whittington has privileged access to its sister companies, it's not a corporate venture fund. We're strictly returns focused and can invest in things that are complementary or disruptive to our sister companies. Um, In terms of connected health, which is the other question that you had asked, um, connected health to us means the interconnectedness of the IP science and the software and informatics sides of healthcare. Now these two pillars are the foundation of healthcare and with the advent of digital health, form a virtuous feedback cycle informing innovations in each of those areas.
0: Oh, it's very interesting. Maybe can you talk a little bit about you use the term privileged access, but the focus on financial returns. what is the what does that privileged access mean and what's that benefit then for you know the companies that you end up working with?
1: Now privileged access for us is really our differentiator as a fund it is a, and it allows us to do a couple of things. First, as investors, it helps us to validate market push versus pull of new technology and inform us on the real gravity of customer pain points. As an investor, you often are exposed to fantastic innovations, but that doesn't always mean that there's a market for it. Second, for startups and our portfolio companies, it means that we're able to bring a real customer or partner to the table when and where it makes sense for both sides. Now this can be invaluable to entrepreneurs as often one of the hardest things about executing a go-to-market strategy is really getting your foot in the door with a motivated buyer or partner at a large enterprise you know ie like a warm lead.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something we hear from a, a lot of startups that that challenge of the the warm intro to the potential customer a strategic partner that that's a really unique value add. And you, you've you been on the other side of this, right? You've been in startups. Um, how much? You, how would you contrast you know, your time being in the venture world versus your time being in the startup world or yeah, being inside of a startup? What, what's been different about going from one to the other? Post being an
1: element, it's really given me an unadulterated perspective on how hard execution really is that not only gives you an appreciation for how hard it might be for the entrepreneur to move things forward, but it also gives you a reality check on the probability of a company hitting their ambitious goals. There's a lot that needs to go right well in advance to be able to close a customer, build a product, feature, or hit your budget. Plain and simple, execution will always take longer than you think. The second thing that I've learned from my experience of being an operator is that that chasm is real. And for those of you listening, if you haven't read Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, I highly suggest you do. Now paying attention to the tech adoption lifecycle and where your product fits into it is super important. Customer interest does not always equal sales and knowing where the market is at will influence your go-to-market strategy pretty heavily. Now, the last big lesson from my time as an operator is really that one should budget with a goal in mind. It's not simply about growing costs and revenue at a certain percentage, as I know is sort of probably the default for a lot of folks when they're doing their budgeting as a startup. You really have to be thoughtful about the goals you wanna achieve in the coming period and the resources you're going to need to achieve it. And then you gotta think about the return on investment of the efforts, both from a short-term and long-term perspective, to achieve those various initiatives. And what I'm really talking about here is an effective capital allocation strategy, and then using that to help you prioritize things accordingly. Ideally, you can likely only move one to two big rocks a year, and sometimes three if you're lucky. So choose wisely.
0: Oh, very good. And even, I have to ask: Do you find, you know, maybe as you've done this longer, as you've been on both sides of the table? Do you feel like you're getting better at figuring out which of those rocks to move or which rock, if it moved, would really um, change the trajectory of the company?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think the answer is always going to vary based on where the company is at in its um in its, you know, in its life. Um, Sometimes that could mean um, finding product market fit. Sometimes that could mean activities oriented around scaling a company because they kind of already figured out their target customer. And now it's a question of making the economics right and and profitable. Um, Sometimes it could just mean around um, product development and, you know, really nailing that Um, those product features in the the coming year that's going to help the company expand into a new market, either geographically or um, just from an industry segment perspective.
0: Oh, very interesting. I want to turn slightly philosophical for a moment and then come back to the practical side, which is, you know, uh, there's been a lot of investment in new healthcare innovations and healthcare startups to improve quality, to lower costs, to to make healthcare operate better in some fashion. And I'm just curious in this, you know, totally an opinion question, but do you think it's had an impact? Are we seeing any of the early benefits of that invention? I always think, you know, these changes occur in an exponential way. So at the beginning, they can seem really small. Is there a signal out there that you might see that makes you think, ah, there is something happening that's meaningful?
1: That's a pretty tall order to answer, but here's my take. There's been a lot of changes over the past year that I think will help catalyze a turning point for healthcare. Now, to be clear, I don't think we're going to be able to optimize better outcomes at lower costs overnight, but I do think the advent of see some key innovations and adoptions will certainly help. Now, one of the first things is um, the widespread adoption of telehealth. You know, we've seen that rapidly happen during COVID-19, and what it really does is it makes care way more accessible, timely, and cheaper to deliver, which I think helps to lead to better outcomes. Good companies that are doing this in the space right now, you know, you've got Nurex, um, who's who's a telehealth and digital pharmacy provider focused on women's health. Ginger.io, which is focused on the mental health space and working with employers to make mental health more accessible. And of course, Teladoc, when you're thinking about widespread um, widespread services provided for uh, telehealth services. The second thing that gets me really excited or optimistic about healthcare is advancements that we've been seeing in point-of-care diagnostics. And what this really does is it allows us to identify and quantify conditions much faster and cheaper than before. Um, Some of these diagnostic tests that we've seen during COVID have really, you know, shone a light on that. And all of that really translates into leading to better outcomes for all as you can only fix what you can measure or identify. And good companies uh, doing this in the space. One is a company called Truvian. It's actually one that we just funded. And Truvian's developed a multiplex countertop blood testing system that can run the whole panel of analytes that you would usually get at your annual wellness checkup in in about 20 minutes or less. You've got Q diagnostics, which has really taken off um, during the past year due to their effective molecular diagnostic testing capabilities and being able to quickly identifying positive negative COVID tests. Um, The third thing that actually gets me super excited is the rollout of value-based care. And we're seeing this real big shift from fee-for-service to pushing people, um, pushing providers to value-based care models. And I believe that, you know, that really makes you focus on the right decisions for each patient, and it will eventually help you optimize for better outcomes. And it really eliminates the incentives for bad actors to push unnecessary treatments. Now, I know this is a work in progress, and there's still kinks to be worked out, but I think the general movement towards this type of uh, healthcare model will um, lead to bigger, and better outcomes in the end. Data interoperability is another thing. we have talked about data interoperability regulations and the recent CMS rules that force the adoption of FHIR, the portability of data. And I think all of those are really huge steps that'll allow for more data-driven decision-making and the gleaning of best practices from a population health perspective. By that, I really mean broad applications of machine learning, um, which is right to do in areas like population health. And companies that are focused on data interoperability, uh, you know, top ones that come to mind for me are Health Gorilla. Health Gorilla is, has plugged into a bunch of health information exchanges and made access to patients' healthcare data, um, of course, privacy provisioned via APIs, easily accessible to developers. Um, you've got another company, actually a Toronto-based one called Medchart, which is focused on structuring unstructured healthcare data and finding unique ways to actually um, digest, access, and then optimize that data for patients to use for multiple, multiple use cases. And the last but not least, and I know this has been a long answer, but you know there are, there are a lot of things that, that give me hope. Um, and it's just the advent of clinical trials. And really during COVID, we've seen clinical trials speed up quite a lot the rapid testing and approval of COVID vaccines has really shown us that, that cl- there is a world where clinical trials can be pretty expedient and effective when needed. Now, innovations in this space will continue to help bring treatments to market faster. And when I'm talking about innovations, you know, I'm thinking about things like digital twins for control groups in, uh, in randomized control trials, patient recruitment, real-world evidence to measure efficacy. And c- companies that come to mind here would be Etion, who's really using real-world evidence uh, to help measure efficacy of drugs during phase four clinical trials, Unlearn, who's focused on digital twins, Evidation Health, um, who's focused on patient-reported outcomes and um, helping with decentralized clinical trial processes.
0: Yeah, a great amount of hope, and I, I, I hear a thread through a lot of those, of you know technologies bringing not just new therapies or products to market quicker, but closer to um, the individual end user, the patient, or, you know, some would say the consumer. And this is an area where, you know, given, as you said, the, the privileged access that Winnington has and the relationships, um, I have to think the, the consumer angle or the consumer potential for some of these is something that's often on your mind. I, I'd be first curious to ask, you know, we've talked about consumerization of health for a long time some of the companies in Whittington are deep in it. What What do you think the state of consumer health is today? And where's, you know, the biggest couple of opportunities you think to, to make it better or make it m- more impactful?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so where do I think cons- consumerization is? So, you know, I, th- I think that um, if we go back to just take a step back and we just say, like, w- I guess, what is consumerization in healthcare? And, and I think... If you unpack that a bit, it's it's for me it just means you know putting more information about you know somebody's biomarkers or conditions, their treatment options, um, transparency around pricing, and you try to take that information and you empower the patient, right? And and that to me is what really defines consumerization of healthcare. Um, it basically you know making healthcare more democratized and accessible, um, and I think that you know some of the stuff that's really driving that is you know decentralization of healthcare beyond the hospital or the doctor's office, right? Telehealth, retail clinics, in-home care, digital pharmacy. And all this just means is, you know, patients are getting, they now have a lot more choice. Um, and I think that what ends up happening there is companies that wanna succeed in giving patients choice, they have to start optimizing on user experience, right? Like the, the healthcare that you and I are going to consume, um, we're used to seeing things that we personally consume, you know, whether those apps on our phone or or software that we use, that's easy to understand um, that's, that's intuitive. And I think that that's the type of things that really come to play then in the consumerization of healthcare piece of it, right? We want our experience with our smartphone and our in-home devices to be ported over to, to kind of healthcare. And so I think that that is a lot of the things that, um, that are driving this trend for consumerization of, of healthcare. And I think a lot of that's just kind of some of the stuff we already chat about, right? Like, you know, accessibility, telehealth, point of care diagnostics, um, data transparency, owning your data, being able to take it where you want to take it, um, knowing what your treatment options are, et cetera.
0: You know, to that, um, sometimes we'll, we'll hear companies or people talk about, okay, there's all this information we could gather, all this data we could provide. And then you get to a point where the the individual patient and managing their condition just has, you know, a deluge of options and information. Where do you see, you know, the, the innovative companies out there taking a role in that? Is there, is there a point where it's too much for the individual? Should we trust them explicitly or where do you see the opportunity, I guess, for innovators to help the consumer manage, um, well, all of the data and information that might be coming at them? Yeah, it's
1: a it's a really good point because I think, you know, you point out that there's this fine balance between, you know, democratizing access to healthcare data, um, and then, not creating this fear and anxiety in patients that now I've got all this data, what do I do with it? What does it mean, right? And I think that some startups are working on interesting ways to help people just derive insights from it or be able to just bring transparency to it that when you're going to chat with your healthcare provider, you can be better armed with what they're saying or being aware of what your treatment options are um, or what certain types of medications mean and, and you know what are the alternatives available to you. And so I think that there's this delicate balance that folks need to, to be able to do. And I, and I think a bit of this balance really comes down to um, not sidelining clinicians and providers, it's actually putting them in the loop, right? And it's arming them with a way to be part of that conversation, to arm the patient with information and transparency on their health condition, choices, treatments, alternatives, but then also bringing the provider as a part of that dialogue to be able to help them decipher what's good versus what's bad, to be able to allow them to say, I understand you must have been reading about X. Um, that's probably not the best place to be looking. You should look at Y, because that's going to pertain a little bit more to your um, conversation. There's a bit of this actually reminds me of, um, you know, uh, Shiv Rao over at um, Abridge is building a really interesting product where, um, you know, it's 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 all about voice. And, you know, you can record your conversation with your doctor, obviously with their permission, to be able to um, remember the... Protocols that they've told you, or the diagnosis that they've shared with you, right? And in the background, what Abridge is doing is it's transcribing that. It's also drawing insights that you know if um, the doctor prescribed like Lipitor, you could actually then get information through the app on Lipitor or the types of conditions Lipitor is actually prescribed for. And if you think about this aging demographic, where you've got a lot of um, elderly folks, and our parents are going through the healthcare system now, and and sometimes they don't remember or can't recall the things that are happening um, this is a way to sort of consumerize healthcare and both collect the data that's a part of their healthcare journey but also be able to allow them to share it with close family and maybe go back to their provider and have a more educated conversation after they've been able to digest it in a way so I'm not sure if I entirely answered your question but that for me is an example when I think about um, you know trying to keep like record the data but also um, safeguard it in a way where, it can be used effectively.
0: Oh, that—that's a, a great example. Um, I love that. Like it's almost reversing, you know, the scribe uh, in there. And I, I think about when I've had care, and the doc has given you lots of useful information, but you might be nervous. You're focused on other things. That's a lot to take on. Like, I use that tool. I'd, I'd use that tool tomorrow. I want to shift to, as we come into the last few minutes of the conversation, a little bit about kind of the the world you're in and how it's changed during the pandemic, specifically, you know, being a venture capitalist. Um, yeah, I have to imagine you might not have been on a plane the last year as much as you were prior. What has it been like uh, being a VC in this environment? Has, has Zoom eliminated the distance issue in finding deal flow or doing investments, or has it made it harder?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, if you asked me a year ago, you know, it's funny we were debating at our firm. So, do we just take a pause in doing deals outside of Toronto and only do things that are local? Um, and then we found out really quick, probably within like three four weeks, that well, no one else is stopping. So either we got to be okay with not investing at all for the next little bit or figuring out a new way to, to do business. Um, so the short answer is, you know, um, we're still like, Zoom has eliminated the distance. Um, and I think it's both um, an advantage and a disadvantage, right? I think the advantage is um, it's sped up times, it's eliminated travel and, uh, and so on. So you can actually um, meet with more entrepreneurs. You can actually, um, start to assess deals a lot quicker and, and get looped into things. Um, I think the challenge has really been around the human element of it, right? Um, you know, it's just like, doctors will say this for medicine, and I think everybody, like there's, for most jobs, there's a human element to being able to read the room, to be able to sit in front of another individual, um, hear his or her story on the building of their business, be able to break bread with them, and just to feel the vibe and energy of an office. And that's hard to do that virtually, right? And so I think that, you know, while we've made good with the situation at hand, um, I do see a a scenario where, you know, we may not travel as much as we used to, but I do think that it's still important to build those human relationships, to be able to um, build a rapport and a relationship with someone. Um, And face-to-face, I just don't think there's, there's a better alternative to that.
0: Yeah, well said. That that hybrid approach seems to be the thing we might all be landing on. And um, I find it funny how you said the beginning of the pandemic, thinking maybe take a break. We heard that from a lot of different groups, and then yeah, we all kind of had to to figure it out. And so far, I think it's working. Up to that point, you described like you can't quite right break bread with a person and get that sort of intimacy but a lot of the other pieces you can do well. You know, you mentioned Toronto and maybe considering only doing deals there given the pandemic. What for those of our audience who aren't familiar, what's the healthcare ecosystem like in Toronto right now? Like I've seen a lot of the biotech activity that's come out of it. What should our aud- our listeners know about Toronto and startups?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so I think that what they should know about Toronto is it's it's an awesome city, um, and it's it's growing and vibrant, and it's got a strong life. It's got strong life sciences players. Um, there's a large university and hospital network here, which um, leads to a, a really good ecosystem and network effect for um, you know training and bringing up super smart entrepreneurs in these spaces, and then um, them to sort of build great companies and, and sort of it's a virtuous cycle. Um, I think that you know there's there's great companies here. Um, Medchart, Swift Medical, Felix Health, Maple, League, um, DASH, Cinex, Deep Genomics, like there's a lot of great names and, and great um, sort of healthcare companies being built in Toronto. Um, I think the advantage and, you know, it's not just for, for healthcare. I think the trend that's been, we've seen here is as um, living in Canada over the past five, six years is, it's also gotten a lot of interest from, from our friends south of the border. And where, you know, when you're investing in US dollars, but you have, um, you know, human and technology costs that are in Canadian dollars, there's a bit of an arbitrage, right? With um, how much further your dollars can go. Um, You also, the folks have also realized that there's a healthy government support program where there's a lot of R and D and tax credits provided to innovative startups. So IE that can help to, to subsidize the cost of building technology and a company here. And last but not least, there's just um, a lot of smart folks building great companies. And, you know, COVID's taught us one thing that, you know, the world is pretty decentralized. And so you can kind of build a great company sitting anywhere around the world and, and reach, um, reach folks. So, you know, um, Canada's got it's a very familiar system um, in terms of culture operating to the U.S. So there's not that much of a culture shock, but, um, you know, I'd say that Canada is still unique and, um, but it's nice that it's a, it's something that's a, a really short hop from our, uh, from our folks um, down South.
0: Yeah. I'll echo, I'll echo that. It's about a 90 minute flight from Minneapolis. Um, oddly enough, we're actually North of Toronto, um, <laughs> which always surprises me. And it is a fantastic healthcare community. I I've been, beyond impressed for years with the companies that come out of there Um, we have a large uh, office of a company called point click care that has their us base here and just fantastic organization i'd say to any of our listeners out there if you're not plugged in you really should be you're missing out we're coming up at the end so meg i just want to say thank you for taking the time today to spend a little bit with us share your perspectives and uh, help our audience to learn a bit more about what's going on in healthcare.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. And folks, that is the Medical Alley podcast. We'll catch you on the next one.